This is Margaret Copeman Preckwitz, and on today's episode of Diabetic Survival, I'm actually going to talk about the shame blame of diabetes. So you probably want to listen to this episode. It's it's pretty important. It's probably one of, you know, I would have to say, if I was doing a series, it'd probably be the first one that I actually put out because uh, the shame blame of diabetes. What what do I mean by that? Well, I actually was uh, watching a really good study uh, called uh, The Emotional Side of Diabetes from the University of California. And of course, if you go um, onto your YouTube channel and type that in, you'll be able to find it. But I wanted to get, of course, a different perspective on this. And so I, I guess you can say I was attending the course, you know, it's like 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, they came back with some really interesting things that um, really made me start thinking. Actually, it's stuff that I haven't been thinking about for a while because my whole thought process is diabetes. That's what I'm always thinking about. But um, a, a lot of times when we're diagnosed as diabetic, even pre-diabetics, diabetics, no matter what type of diabetic you are, it's, it's the, the shame game. And I don't, of course, don't mean to call it a game, but in actuality, there's so many people that are living in denial. It's, it's very rare you walk up to somebody and say, hi, my name is so-and-so and I'm a pre-diabetic or I'm so-and-so and I have diabetes and I'm proud of it. No, you're not going to hear that. I, I mean, you'll hear that if you come up to me. I'm going to be like, yes, I have diabetes and I'm proud. Uh, but I'm kind of a little bit different too because I've been researching this topic for such a long time. When I'm talking research, I've uh, reviewed articles, I've watched videos, I've gotten different perspectives from different doctors, lecturers, other diabetics that, um, you know, I, I kind of qualify as the kind of person that can be proud of something. So eventually I'll have something take me out, which I did not actually go over. And that's not what how I want to go out of this world. I want to know what I actually die of when I do die. Because diabetes is just the condition of your blood sugar being too high. Eventually it's going to wreak havoc in your body. You don't know what it's going to do. Uh, kidney disease is a big one. Blindness is a big one. Well, I'm, I'm not blind, so I can still see. And I see very well. Thank you very much. Um, or foot problems, infections, you name it. I mean, there's a lot of things. Diabetes can be insidious, but that's why when you're diagnosed with diabetes, it's probably healthy to learn as much, well, not only to get on medication right away if you need to be on medication, but also to do your research and to make yourself as healthy as possible because you're not going to live long if you don't. One of the things is, too, is I can actually talk forever, but I don't beat around the bush. Diabetes will kill you in one form, fashion, or another. Um, either uh, other types of cancers or um, infections. You know, like I said, kidney disease. It, it will kill you. So um, being as aware of the possibilities as possible means that you don't have to sit on the sidelines like a wallflower and just let this disease take over without a fight. 
And, you know, I, I think that fighting is a good thing because you're going to feel, if you're doing things right, you're going to feel healthier and stronger than you ever have. And you're going to wonder about uh, maybe how long you've actually had this. You may have had this since your teens or even earlier. And, of course, a lot of children are actually diagnosed as type 1s because their pancreases are totally gone by the time they're adults and then they have to start injecting right away, which is why they label them type 1s. Well, type 1 diabetics, they are... (laughs) They can be extremely judgmental. You know, type ones are usually thin. They have they have to inject every day. They don't they don't have a pancreas. There's a difference between a type one and a type two. Um, type twos we still have a functioning pancreas somewhat, and um, I'm not quite sure. Like I would love to find out that the pancreas can rejuvenate itself by just scraping, drinking grape juice, but. Um, So far, that has not been the case, nor have I found anything to actually rejuvenate a pancreas. I I would love to, but I I don't think there's too many people touching that subject. Or maybe I just haven't found the right article yet, and maybe I will be reporting on that one day that, yes, you can rejuvenate your pancreas, which would actually give type 1's hope. But may I digress and actually talk about Dr. Bernstein. Now, Dr. Bernstein was a type 1 diabetic, and he was able to actually reverse his diabetes diagnosis so that he lived a long, healthy, fruitful life. As a matter of fact, the guy's like 80 plus and still going strong. So if you have not read my podcast on Dr. Bernstein, then I would encourage you to actually do that. And I think that the desperation for diabetics, they get to that point where they cannot manage their blood sugars their pancreas is too far gone and actually getting insulin shots is inevitable and there is also a bias against that especially if you're type 2 it's like why couldn't you control your diet or why why couldn't you make lifestyle changes to reduce your stress management or why couldn't you do this why didn't you get enough sleep I mean you know the blame game goes on I think people do the best that they actually can so uh of course, uh, the episode that I was actually watching back to, jumping back to the uh, University of California and emotional side of diabetes, it's uh, a blame game. And it's hard in families, even when we're predisposed to diabetes, to actually talk about it. And I found this in my family, especially. People just don't want to talk about diabetes. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody. But it's an important talk- topic. It deserves to be talked about and especially in families we have our favorite foods that we like to eat and we certainly don't want anybody telling us that we can't have our favorite foods like potatoes ever again potatoes are fine in moderation but potatoes are starch it turns into sugar and potatoes and I love potatoes I'm gonna be the first to admit I still have the occasional potato but I have it occasionally once in a blue moon. I don't have it all the time. I used to eat potatoes all the time. Um, I, as part of, I, I, I would like to say it's part of my Irish ancestry. I am part Irish, part Dutch, part Welsh too. Uh, but I love my potatoes and I love them fried and I like them mashed and I like baked potatoes. Oh my goodness. 
I can't tell you how many times I go to the grocery store, I go immediately to the vegetable aisle, and I look, and I just salivate over the potatoes. And that's not my lifestyle anymore. I cannot just grab a potato and bring it home and bake it. And when I made potatoes, I made potatoes. I didn't, I didn't play around with this. If I was going after baked potatoes, I mean, I'd buy the the 10 pound bags that last like, or 20 pound bags, depending, that would last me and my, my former husband several weeks. And we, that's what we would eat is potatoes. It was our main staple. And of course, my former husband didn't have a problem with diabetes, so he could eat all the potatoes he wanted. What I didn't know at the time is it was probably wreaking havoc on my diabetes. So, um, or rice. Rice is another one. That's another culprit. It's the starch. And I, I mean, there's arguments with that. Like, what about brown rice? Blah, blah, blah. Everything in moderation. Obviously, if you're having it for every meal, there might be a problem. So, uh, everything in moderation. Once in a while. Treat it like you would a snack. Because, I mean, we can't even really look at snack cakes. But again, you can have it once in a blue moon and make sure it's a small piece. So, um, your, your blood sugar meter, your monitor, should be the ruler, basically, of your life now. Um, constantly testing types of foods to make sure that certain things don't raise your blood sugars. But there's actually, what if I told you there's an easier way? There is an easier way, and that is to eat the safe foods and then develop your diets around those safe foods. And they're, they're healthy foods. They're good foods. As long as you don't combine them with starches, uh, they're very good foods to eat. Eggs and steak and butter and, you know, even some of the bad... The, the I, I'm kind of steering away from bacon a little bit because of the nitrates in it and, and ham. Um, the nitrates can actually wreak havoc on a diabetic as well. I don't have proof on that just yet, but considering is wreaking havoc on the general population. Whatever happens to the general population is going to happen to a diabetic, right? So um, my little my little spiel about nitrates is, okay, I'm still learning about that, but of course, as more information comes in, I will share it, definitely. Now back to the, the blame and shame game. So... I mean, I don't want to actually name names or anything, but like, I'll talk a little bit about my family. My, my family doesn't like to talk about health disorders. They just kind of like to keep it private, keep it to themselves, and just deal with it. And this is absolutely the worst thing you can do. The reason being is because unless you're researching every day, like I'm researching every day, Unless you're researching every day, you don't know what you don't know, and it, it generally gets worse. So, diabetes is not something that generally gets better, it gets worse. So, to actually be able to reverse it is, like, huge. I can reverse it. So, that's huge. That's, like, a miracle right there. And, uh, you know, I give that credit to God because that's a responsible thing to do. God gave me a mind, and I use it. But I think more clearly and concisely than I ever have because I've eliminated the carbs. And carbs, I, I just imagine, is kind of like the fogginess and the fogginess that actually occurs. And when we're actually consuming bread, now we already have carbs in our, our food already. And our body's really good at converting things to carbs. So, you know, 
the thing is, is I wouldn't worry too much about feeding your brain because I know some nurses worry about that as well. They're like, but you have to get the carbs because you need to feed your brain. Well, of course I'm feeding my brain. I'm feeding my whole entire body and it turns the excess into carbs. And when it does that, then I can eliminate the bread products. And you know what? Not eating bread is so hard. But there are reduced carb versions of bread out there now. And there's even carb-free bread to where if you really need to actually snack on bread, you can actually control your blood sugar quite miraculously. So, uh, Dr. Eckberg, Dr. Eckberg, now there's a Dr. Berg as well. He's, he's good as well. But I'm referring to Dr., I think it was Stan Eckberg. Dr. Stan Eckberg. Okay. He's, he's very good about telling you what what is like low carb, what you can eat, and what actually is probably not on your, should be on your good list. So really good. But this is where I like these doctors because they're not judgmental. They just tell you like it is without blaming you for your disorder. And that's good. I have a hard time actually talking to my family about this because some of them are so closed-minded they won't even go into a discussion about it. They think I'm automatically judging them and I am not. When you have an inherited disorder, that's something that's passed on to you by your parents to you and it's part of being who you are. I mean, I wouldn't blame your parents either. I mean, don't blame anybody. You can't blame the doctors. Don't blame your parents. You can't blame your horrible eating choices if this is how you grew up and this is the way that you were raised. Your parents did the best that they could with the information that they had. It might be your responsibility, though, to actually go a little bit further, do some investigation, and find out how to actually eat right. And there are people who do it. So the thing is, 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 is if you want to keep your disorder, your disease to yourself, that's one thing, but you're not going to, you're probably not going to live a long time. You might as well shave 20, 30 years off your life and you don't need to do that because if Dr. Bernstein is a type one diabetic and he is now no longer on insulin and just eating healthy foods and surviving at 80 plus years old, when most type one diabetics don't even have that opportunity then there's something to be said with the diet that he actually recommends. And of course, that diet has a name and it's keto. So um, back to the blaming and shaming and guilt tripping and such. You, you don't need to be shamed. You don't need to actually try to have a dialogue with anybody who's, who's blaming you for your disorder. I remember one time a type 1 actually came up to me and she said, well, that's not going to work. When I'm referring to my diet and how excited I was about keto. That doesn't work because I tried that. My blood sugars are all over the place. Ah. And I, I don't know what she actually puts in her mouth. She's a nice thin girl and she's mad because she's diabetic. I mean, I guess I would be too. I, I've known people with pumps. They have to deal with those all the time. I may have to deal with it at some point in time. I hope I don't. Um, I hope I can keep my numbers down. But I think I really... One thing I found is I really enjoy 
the new diet that I'm on because I feel like a human being again. And so and I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. I mean, I, I do occasionally eat like a hash brown or something, you know, just, just to remember the taste of it. But I don't need to have that food. There's so many other delicious foods I can actually eat, like avocados and eggs and drink coffee and put heavy cream in there, stuff that I've never done before. This could literally be an adventure for anyone. I'm just eliminating sugar and carbs. Now, I, I didn't actually eliminate all the sugar, mind you. Like, for instance, when I drink milk, there's still sugar in milk. So I'm not completely eliminating it. But I'm actually still staying in the World Health Organization's recommendation of no more than six teaspoons of sugar a day when I do that. And I'm probably having less than that. And when you do that, your body feels great. So, back to the type 1 diabetic that I had to deal with. And this was at work. She's saying, those diets won't work. None of those diets work. I'm taking more insulin in more than ever before. And my numbers are all off whack. I've missed a lot of work because of my diabetes. Blah, 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 blah. So... She was mad at me because I'm not type 1. I'm not dealing with the same diabetes she is. But I still get the same sympathy she would as being a diabetic. And she doesn't like that. Because she has it, as she sees it, as something more serious than what I have. Well, her disorder for her is serious. And my disorder for me is serious as well. I mean, you don't compare uh, pancreatic cancer and breast cancer as being the same. It's still cancer. Well, diabetes, I mean, your pancreas is partially there or wholly there or not there at all. And so it's this, the same thing. So I, I kind of, I felt a little bit hurt by what she had said because here I was, I found this amazing diet and I lost a tremendous amount of weight on this diet and it was very hard to actually stay on. But because I did commit six months of my life to actually turning my diet around, I learned a lot about food. And I learned a lot about the foods that would actually hurt me and a lot about the foods that would actually help me. It was a great experiment for myself. Now, another thing I'm going to tell you, this is this might be a little bit disheartening. Okay, so I got some bad news too. Your diabetes is literally a full-time job. So actually um, reading articles, exploring articles, seeing what works, seeing what does not work, testing your blood sugars, it's, it's endless. But eventually the you're not going to have to test as much because you automatically know if something's going to spike your blood sugar or not. And eventually, you're not going to have to do this at all. But it's going to take a long time. You know, dedicate like a decade to it. You'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about. So, um, of course, there's certain foods that actually spike your blood sugar and some that don't. And sometimes it's sleep deprivation. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes your pancreas is just gone. And, and then you have to make the decision. Okay, I've been on the metformin a long time, but my pancreas is just gone. And, and my blood sugar is absolutely out of control metformin isn't working anymore they might get you on another dosage of something to bring it down and let's say that's still not changing your numbers you're gonna have to do something so but I think that uh, insulin should definitely be one of those decisions life life decisions you make with your doctor and if you have tried every 
you know, diet out there under imaginable to actually bring your blood sugar down and it's still not going down. And then the doctor's going to have a talk, you know, the life and death talk with you. And that's when you're going to have to decide, okay, my life is worth saving. I'm going to go on insulin. You know, that's fine. If you have to go on insulin, that's fine. But like I said, insulin is more for type 1s. Type 2s need to control this with their diet. And we definitely shouldn't be playing the blame game because that person who could be telling you, well, it was lifestyle change, you should exercise more, and you should have, like, ate the right foods, they're probably snacking on potato chips and, and they barely move 300 feet in a day. You know, you, you don't know. So, you know what? It's just somebody thinking that they're better than somebody else, and it's just horrible, and that's what our world basically is whether people have to put other people down that's not necessary that's not good it's not a good way to actually live your life by putting somebody else down so you know I'm, I'm a proud diabetic okay and this is literally because I'm open I'm honest about it I have no problems telling people that I'm diabetic I'm diabetic and proud it it opens up doors that would have never been opened up before so you don't have to hide it anymore you don't have to have people blaming you or shaming you because you're diabetic and it will happen at some point so like when you're proud to be a diabetic and you just kind of look at them like you're an idiot you know i mean i hate to say it like that but yeah it's like wow you really don't know my disorder you have no idea what i've been through just to stay healthy today So, um, but what is also sad is when you see other people hiding in their shells and they don't come out of those shells because they they feel like they are being punished for some reason for having diabetes and they're just accepting that. And that's, that's what I'm talking about. And there are people who do it and they die young and there's no reason for you to die young from diabetes, there is a way to actually fight it. But you've got to make that choice to fight it. So, okay, I, I need to get back into the talk because I, I, I was kind of lecturing a little bit, but it's because I care. And, of course, I realize not everybody is like me. I would love it if everybody was like me because I wouldn't need to do podcasts, but not everybody is. So... Why is it so hard to talk to people with diabetes? Well, probably because they don't want you to see their weaknesses, right? I'm sure there's a whole list of things, but that's the first thing I can think of. Um, Another thing they went into is depression. Does diabetes cause depression or did depression come first? So uh, you're, you're more likely to actually end up with a lot of things having diabetes like cancer, depression, anxiety etc. But it, it might be because we're going to our doctor more too and there's more things that can actually find out about us. Remember, depression is sometimes a situational thing. There are people who are chronically depressed, but there are other people who are just depressed for a day or two and they snap out of it. Or like, let's say somebody passes on. They may be depressed for the day or for the week or for the month or for the year. Everybody's grief is different. So... One of the things that was in the study, and that's through the University of California, was one of the things that they found, like for instance in San Francisco's, is access to good foods. And they found that in the inner cities. And I was a little bit shocked as much as San Francisco real estate is. 
if people just didn't have access to good fresh fruits and vegetables. And uh, exercise isn't like necessarily a priority. They got transportation and stuff, so it's not. Um, access to doctors is limited. Uh, fish was another big one. That, that was kind of interesting. Uh, diabetes isn't like a hat that you can take off at the end of the day and not have to worry about. I mean, you have to worry about it all the time, but, um, there's all kinds of things. So, the shame and blame of diabetes is very demoralizing, and it's hard to talk about, especially if people don't want to talk about it. They go, oh, I got diabetes, and look at that, and you want to talk about it. They, they may feel demoralized for it, and, of course, that wasn't the point, but because of the shame surrounding diabetes, that just automatically is automatic instinct for me. So, um, so the blame and shame game is an enormous burden that diabetics actually carry with them. And this isn't this isn't their fault. This is type two runs in families. It's genetic. Sometimes it's environmental because you don't have access to certain vegetables that you actually need or certain foods that you need let's say bread is like prevalent or you know a lot of people eat bread I know I did when I was poor that was the food you went to to fill you up when you couldn't afford good food um there's also another factor which they brought up which I found just absolutely very interesting is um Another reason why they keep, why people may keep it to themselves is because um, they may not feel attractive to their partners anymore. And so, you know, like they're carrying around a pump and they're like, good grief, I wonder if my husband still finds me attractive. This is huge. And if you're single, you know, carrying around a pump is just kind of like a little bit awkward. And you walk into a bar, you got to adjust your pump, you got everybody in the bar staring at you blush, you go to the bathroom to adjust your pump. I mean, you got the blame thing going on. Um, I'm kind of a little bit different. I don't know if I, if I was wearing a pump, if I just whip it out and just start adjusting it right away and just don't care about what anybody thinks, but, uh, I just might because walking around and not really giving a care about what people think is kind of cool, actually. You should try it one of these days just to see how it works on you. I mean, you might be embarrassed the first time. You might have to try it a couple times. But it's kind of cool. You just walk out there and make sure nobody knows you. Walk into a small bar where nobody knows you and just whip out your pump if you have one. See what people say. You can have a lot of gawkers, by the way. I'm pretty sure of that. I mean, it's kind of like if you were testing your blood sugar at the table. You don't see people doing this. It's rare. Um, I mean, it, it involves blood. Some people would be absolutely offended if they saw your blood. So, um, yeah, that might, that might go to the bathroom just because of health hazard reasons. But, um, or, you know, they might clear out the restaurant because you, you never know. People are just weird nowadays. Uh, but what I'm talking about is actually talking about diabetes, not necessarily whipping out your pump, you know, the physicalities of it, or, you know, using your test strips and flicking your test strip across the table and not, please don't do that. Um... Somebody might actually call the cops on you. Uh, so, let me see if I have any other... Okay. Um, one of the things is, is also, you know, parents worry about passing this on to their kids. They worry about the distress it would cause. 
them, they worry about the emotions of talking with it between friends and family. Um, it was just a really interesting talk. Now, one of the things, too, that I really enjoyed listening to, they're like, so is diabetes the leading cause of kidney disease and blindness? What is your answer? Okay, I may have given you sort of a clue, but maybe not. Okay, so it can cause kidney disease and blindness. But there's a thing that, that needs to be added to the diabetes clause, and that is... Poorly controlled diabetes is a leading cause of kidney disease and blindness. So, so it's not your diabetes that's going to kill you. It's the fact that you're not managing it properly that's going to kill you. And there's no, there's no if ands or buts about that. Um, now I guess I I kind of went on this spill on diabetes. The reason why I kind of made this my full-time job is because I have like this really weird goal of living to 120 and I I was thinking that if Dr. Bernstein could live in, well into his 80s with type 1 diabetes, how much longer can I live with type 2 diabetes taking metformin for the rest of my life? I mean, I already know I'm going to take it for the rest of my life. But can I actually... I mean, you know what? I'm going to be giving myself a pat on my on the back when I'm in my 80s. I may not want to live to 120 when I'm in my 80s. I'm going to be like, oh, I ache all over. This sucks. But I think that if I get to 80, I might as well try to get to 120. I mean, what's another 40 years? I mean, gee whiz. I, I mean, and like, I'm looking at... And I'm like, when am I going to be 30 years? Something like that? So I'm looking at turning 80, like 30 years, all 30 plus years, a couple more years than that. So I think that if I can make it to 80, then I can certainly make it to 120. Maybe I should do this in steps. But my my rolling joke is I can make it to 120. And my hope is that I can make it up into my 80s, my mid-80s, just like Dr. Bernstein, just like like one of my grandmothers, um, my great-grandparents, you know, they lived to close to 100. My great-grandfather was 101, and my great-grandmother was 98 when she passed. So I don't necessarily, I'm going to have the longevity gene and then the diabetes gene, but which one's going to, which one is going to win? I, I don't know, but I figured, like, the nursing home is what killed my, my great-grandfather. I mean, he was only there for like a year, and then he died. So he probably could have, like, lived to 120, I would imagine. I mean, he was kind of going a little bit crazy by that time, and I'm sure his blood sugars were high. But um, now, blood sugar, blood sugar factors didn't run on that side of the family. It was my father's side. But um, you know, it's, it's still pretty interesting because it can be passed down to your kids, even if it's on your father's side. So diabetes is just different when. This in a family, I think it is absolutely a failure not to talk about it. When you have aunts and uncles and sisters and brothers and parents who have diabetes, I think it is more beneficial to try to do what you can to actually eliminate your risk instead of walking that path alone when you don't need to. So I kind of like to see it as, you know what, it runs in families. Family needs to help each other out with it. 
So another reason for my podcast is I wish that, you know, my family members would actually listen to what I have to say, maybe join in at some point in time, maybe correct me at some time. That'd be great too. But don't tell me to shush or not talk about it because this is how I manage it. When I started taking metformin, they were a little bit, I wasn't necessarily uh, to the point where I needed to take metformin, but because I knew of my family's history with it, that's why I decided to actually go ahead and take it and actually nip it in the bud. And you know what? It did nip it in the bud. Uh, Medications do work. And I was able to go a long time being pre-diabetic, you know, well into my 40s, most of my 40s, before uh, they actually said, okay, determined that I was diabetic. And, uh, of course, after you turn 40, then, you know, you have an increased risk factor for diabetes. Everybody does. So your blood just doesn't work as well. You know, your system doesn't work as well. Your... Um, the cells that actually take in the glucose don't work as well, let's just say. And so they have a harder time actually uh, catching up with that. But if you know that certain foods are going to make you near normal, then this is one of the benefits of being near normal. When you're near normal again with your blood sugars, because you can reduce it through exercise and diet, the proper diet, um, definitely with the keto because you're, you're going to enjoy it. I, I'm telling you, when you get to make scrambled eggs and put some butter in it, it's delicious. I don't even really add anything else. Uh, just just eggs. I'll just eat eggs and that's it. Um, occasionally I'll eat, I'll eat sausage. And uh, when I do, I make sure it's not red. Uh, red has some nitrates in it. So I don't know, I'm, I'm hoping that they don't put the nitrates in there, but once I find out that they add something that's not good for me, then I don't need it anymore. So, um, I try to make simple meals. I have lots of vegetables. I'm going to be making, like, um, I have some rice cauliflower. I love rice cauliflower because even though it's pretty much tasteless smell, when you fry it up and you add a little bit of, like, for instance, Mrs. Dash seasoning or maybe some onion, it really just absorbs the flavor nicely and makes cauliflower taste so much better. So, um, so you, you may become your own chef too here, but diabetes management is a full-time job, unfortunately. Now, if you've got a spouse that's on board and your spouse is looking into all this stuff for you, hey, that's great. you got a personal secretary there that can help you out and, you know, make sure that you're eating the right foods that are, are right for your body. And you can go through that together. And I actually saw that at uh, the University of California. Actually, now there weren't too many people you know, where they had spouses that were attending, you know, like maybe two out of 30. But they were still, you know, involved with their partner's welfare. And it was a good thing. They obviously want their spouses to live a long time. So, good for them. Um, there's other people that are self-taught, and many of the people that were there were in different stages of their diabetes. Some people were on pumps, some people were just on metformin, so it wasn't a big deal. There were others who were pre-diabetics, and so they're trying to still figure out the whole food thing and learn how to manage it. And regardless of whatever step that you're in with your diabetes, whatever phase you're in, uh, they don't necessarily come in phases, I know, but they should. 
diabetes should cover phases, like, you know, the first phase of the pre-diabetic, and then the stage of diabetes, and then the stage of, you will definitely have diabetes if you need to get insulin type diabetes. Um, this is, this is really cool, if you think about it, because if we talk about diabetes, we can help each other out. For now, we have the doctors. We have good old Dr. Stein Eckberg. He is excellent. Again, he can be found on YouTube. And he has, he's so inspirational. English is a second language, by the way. And he does such a great job. And I would have never guessed that English was a second language until he said something. I just thought he just talked slower. And he was talking slower because it's a second language. So the guy's a genius. Look him up, Dr. Stein Eckberg. So, okay, let me let me um, talk a little bit more about the blame and shame, okay? I kind of look at it kind of like the cool kids. The cool kids in, in high school didn't like to talk about anything. They just liked to look cool, you know? They wore the sunglasses, smoked the cigarette or the pot, but they were the cool kids. Okay, whatever. Um, so it was kind of cool to hang out with the cool kids. You just sat there and pretended like you were cool, too. I've, I've sat with the cool kids. I didn't really understand it, but, you know, then they'd go out and, like, you know, they'd smoke their cigarettes in public, and then they'd go behind closed doors and smoke pot. I didn't do that. I, I was not down with that, so I wasn't a cool kid anymore, but uh, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I feel pretty cool being square and actually uh, learning about things, and that's my kind of cool. Um, so I guess I'm kind of like the, the, the round peg that's in the you know, the square peg, and I'm like the little round cylinder, and I'm trying to fit it in there, it doesn't quite fit, it's okay, um, technically, I'm not just trying to look cool, I, I, I actually do podcasts, because I'm getting, you know, interesting information coming in, I've done a little bit of research on it, and I want to share it, that's my whole point, point. and not to mention, now I feel obligated to it, because I got listeners from all over the world tuning in, and so I just want to continue more of it because I'm actually quite enjoying it. Now, if you're still getting my, my podcast, I want to thank you because it's been a little bit harder since uh, my Twitter page and my Facebook page are down, uh, hopefully temporarily. I had some issues with that. I'm not quite sure what happened with Twitter. I think maybe my account was compromised, but it's where I used to post a lot of my podcast videos. So, um, if you were going there and then all of a sudden it stopped, I apologize, but you should still be able to access the podcast. And my Facebook was another one where I cannot, you know, push out new podcasts because unfortunately my account for some reason there has been temporarily blocked as well. So, um, there seems to be some issues that I'm working out with them. Uh, they said something about excessive spamming, which I don't do. I post like maybe once, then I'm done. So something happened, and I'm still trying to get to the bottom of that. Um, there's some insidious people out there that, that were, you know, it, it's around election time here in the U.S., so a lot of weird stuff has been going on anyways. And so I'm just trying to get through it just like everybody else is and just trying to get back to normalcy because it can't last. The chaos can't last forever. So to wrap this up, it's good to actually talk 
to somebody about your diabetes is good. I mean, if you think about it, Alcoholics Anonymous, they have AA. They go in there, they tell their little stories, and then they leave, hopefully not drinking again. You know, some of them might, and then they come back. They're always welcome back. And diabetes isn't any different. We can't just stop. I mean, I guess some people can stop alcohol and stuff, but some, a lot of people go back to it because it's a disease. It's something to go back to. Food is no different. It's like, oh my gosh, I had like this humongous plate of rice. And it was so delicious. And for the once, I felt normal. Well, you know what? Feeling normal is okay. There's nothing wrong with feeling normal. But, um... I'm actually, okay, so like, like, speaking of rice, like I was telling you about, I have cauliflowered rice. So it's, it's an amazing little substitute for rice. And I actually like the cauliflower rice much better than I actually like regular rice. When I'm eating regular rice, I I just, it's just gross to me. So it's, it doesn't have any taste to it. I mean, of course you can add different types of things to it to taste good and stuff. But if you have a healthy alternative, such as cauliflower rice, just switch over. That way you can still pretend like it's rice and then still get the, um, the, the benefits out of it by the fact that you're not going to raise your blood sugar. I mean, that's amazing, right? There are people who aren't even diabetic who love the fact that they are reducing their carbs. Because, you know, they know that when you reduce your carbs, you lose weight. And so they're trying to achieve a certain, you know, physical look. And so they'll monitor their blood sugars too. They, they aren't even diabetics and good for them. But if they can do it, they found kind of like a, the secret weapon to lowering your blood sugar. They know that that's important. When you can control that, you can't lose weight, which is absolutely amazing. I think it is anyway. So I'm just, my hat's off to them because they are still testing their blood sugars because they're trying to achieve certain results. Now, whether they find those results or not with their blood sugars, you know, is beyond me. But that's what I've actually seen in the... Um, see, that's what I've actually seen in the gym people do. And, you know, my hat, like, again, my hat's off to them because they're amazing people definitely in the physicality uh, of it all and of course that's where the point where we need to get to is um, where we feel normal and I think testing your blood sugar more for that reason is, is probably a better way than what we have to do where you have to do it I mean I you know you tell me anything that I have to do and I'm going to actually normally repel to that and maybe that's the same thing that goes in with the blame and shame of diabetics and probably one of the reasons why my family members don't like to talk to me a lot because it always sways towards diabetes and they start talking about their diabetes and then I'm like there's things you can do about that and they don't want to hear it they automatically close off they don't want to hear anything that I say even though I've been able to reverse my A1C numbers Some of you may not even know what A1C numbers are. Yeah, can you believe it? There's diabetics that don't even know what an A1C is. If you don't know what your A1C is, how the heck is it that you know you're diabetic? Because a doctor does come in and tell you your A1Cs were high. 
And I'm afraid that you might be diabetic. Okay, so if you haven't had a conversation with your doctor, are you sure you're diabetic? Or are you just saying you're diabetic? Because diabetics know what their A1Cs are. They get them done every three months if they want to know where their blood sugars are at. Like, I kind of know when my body's feeling kind of crappy that when I need to go into the doctor and say, I think you better run an A1C if they don't offer. But if my blood sugar is tested normal, they may not have any reason to, especially if I dropped like 20 pounds and I walk in there and I'm like, oh, I'm here for my medication reminder. They may not put me on an extra added dose of medication because they already know that losing 20 pounds, I'm actually reducing, not only reducing my rate of diabetes, but I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which means I've brought down my A1Cs, which means they're not going to have to prescribe more medication for me. So they may not even run my A1C. So it's like, but please, doctor, run my A1C. I want to see where it's at. like, nah, you're doing what you're supposed to do. We'd just be wasting our time. It's true. They would be wasting their time. They would be wasting their time because you actually did everything your doctor told you to do, plus some. You dropped probably too much weight. Your doctor's now questioning if if you actually have cancer or not because you've done such a great job with losing weight. And all you did was remove carbs out of your food does not mean you have cancer just because you dropped 20 pounds. It means you're finally paying attention to what you're putting in your body, you're exercising, you're doing what you should do. So when your doctor questions that or says something like that, that is a huge compliment. If they're just not outright complimenting you, they're still complimenting you by saying, we don't need to do your one c You've dropped 20 pounds. You're doing, like, whatever we're giving you is working. It might even be working too well. And uh, so, so when they put you on the dose of metformin and stuff like that, they may increase your dose, but that's more than likely because you haven't dropped any weight. They can tell automatically. When your numbers are down, like for instance your weight, you're doing what you're supposed to do. When it's increased, you're not doing what you're supposed to. And I love doctors, mind you. They're smart. If they don't really know, they keep their mouth shut. Nurses, not so much. Nurses will tell you, oh, keto diet is so harmful for you. Ah. But then when they actually uh, do a lipid panel and they find out your kidneys are perfectly functioning, just fine, then they're just kind of questioning you. But I think the weirdest thing was, this, I was actually put on statins. And statins are actually used to lower the bad fats, the bad cholesterols. Now, I gotta warn you, some doctors will just put you on a year of this stuff because even though your cholesterol is just fine, it's in the norm range, they're not taking any chances. They're not gonna have you kill over from a stroke or whatnot. I was really hesitant to actually take the statins because I've heard a lot of controversial bits of information about it, but when I went to go look it up online, I couldn't find anything like overly wrong about statins. So I started taking statins. And I'm still taking statins because my doctor thought it was more important than my metformin. She only gave me like a couple of months for my metformin, but she gave me a year of statins. I'm just looking at these statins like, is it really necessary for me to take a pill that I don't really necessarily need? But I guess they felt it was important. So they put me on a statin. And okay, so it's there to prevent heart attacks and strokes. Well, I don't want to have a heart attack or stroke, so I mean, if I take this little round pill and it's not going to have any side effects and it's going to prevent me from having a heart attack or a stroke, well, 
then I'm going to take it. And I've been told I'm more likely to have a stroke or a heart attack. I'm not quite sure why. I haven't researched that. So, like I said, if I haven't researched it, I'm not going to dive into the, the aspect of why that is possible because right now it's not important. It's not in my markers. But some people with diabetes, and the reason why they want to get a lipid panel done is because you want to see if something, some damage is going on with your kidneys or if... Um, For instance, you have a higher risk for a stroke or a heart attack because your cholesterol might be too high. This is self-care, people. You've got to take care of yourself. You've got to know about these things. So it's not just taking your medication and checking your blood sugar every once in a while. There's a lot of management that actually goes into diabetes. You have to do the research on it. You have to... Find a diet that actually works for you because this this is going to be what saves your life. And I'm going to bring up Dennis Pollock again. I'm a big, huge fan of Dennis Pollock. Dennis Pollock is a hypoglycemic, but he controls his diabetes with diet. Strictly with diet, is not on any types of medications. He does have it run high on occasion. But then, you know, because he'll test his blood sugar with certain types of food with him and his wife. And his wife's normal. So he'll test her blood sugar too, show you what normal looks like. And then he'll test his blood sugar to show you what a diabetic, a hypoglycemic looks like. I have yet to really see a hyperglycemic on there, but I'm sure that they're on there. I, I found the hypoglycemic actually a little bit more interesting. So, because it's a little bit more deadlier than it is to be hyperglycemic, believe it or not. So, um, they are, they are a, a powerhouse duo, duo, him and his wife. I'm, I'm not quite sure what, uh, Dennis Block's wife's name, but she's, a, she's amazing too. She's actually from Africa and, uh, you know, he's probably from here. He sounds like he's from America anyways. Amazing team. Oreo cookie awesomeness. And I did not just say that. Okay, scratch that rid of that part. Okay, they are awesome. Awesome little duo that actually tests blood sugar and they show where the markers are. If you eat this, this is what's going to happen. If you eat this, it's going to happen. And I'm still surprised by the fact that a banana can raise your blood sugar faster than a Hershey's candy bar. Hershey's candy bar, I think he tested at 165 and the banana was like uh, 220. Yeah, 220. Can you believe it? A banana. So put the banana down. Oh, put the chocolate bar down too. You don't need that. Eat dark chocolate. If you're going to have a chocolate, you know, try to eat the little dark chocolate thingies. It's really good for your flavanols. I think they call it good for your, your arteries. They actually say that dark chocolate is just like red wine. So if you don't like red wine, for goodness sake, just eat a little bit of dark chocolate. Or have some coffee with some heavy cream. Yes, I said heavy cream. Go out and get yourself some heavy cream to put in your coffee and eliminate your carbs. No more English muffin. I'm sorry. They just they just don't do carb-free version. They have a lot of freaking carbs in there. Well, okay, so I, I kind of take that back. Um, just if you can eat just one English muffin and be perfectly fine, then more power to you. I can't. 
I have to eat like two or three of those things, so I don't eat them at all. Um, I'll just have eggs uh, or bacon. And I'm not even really doing bacon anymore because I, I'm like with the whole nitrates and stuff in pork. I, I'm a little bit concerned about that, especially s- since it shouldn't even be in meat anyways. I mean, they're saying nobody will buy meat if it isn't red. Well, yes, I would because now I know nitrates are red. And what makes the red, red the, the meat red, and that it's normally brown. I can accept that fact. Just put an ad out about how meat, like people, we've been like giving you a gimmick this whole time. Pork is actually not red, you know. Okay, take the nitrates out. I'll still eat it. I promise. Okay, so that that pretty much ends this episode. I don't know if I actually uh, hit on the topics with enough emphasis because I kind of like went off topic a little bit, but. It just kind of went that way. So talk to your, you know, find people that you trust. It's like, again, it's like NA or AA, where they're constantly going in and, t- and, and talking about their disorder. I wish there was something like that for diabetes. As far as I know, there's not. Sometimes hospitals come up with, with these group meetings, though. So if you can, join it. Because um, you're not alone. Don't feel alone. Never feel alone in your, your disorder, your disease. You're not alone. There's other people that have it too. There's other people that want to talk about it. And it's quite informative. Definitely have a discussion, a roundtable discussion. Okay, so this is Margaret Copeland Franklin. Again, I want to thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Again, we have people from all over the world. Africa, this one goes to you this time because there are listeners in Africa. And I noticed that I've been getting people with different age groups in my demographics. So, like, last week I was excited because I found out I had my first person that actually reported on here anyways, that they were over 65. And I love my my senior sneakers crowd, you know, the silver sneakers, I guess you call them. I love those people. They're awesome. But I've also had some younger people actually tune in because usually it's people around my age anyways or a little bit older. And so it was so cool to actually see uh, some kids actually in their 20s listening. Uh, Young 20s too, like 20 to 25 and then the 25 to 35 demographic. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Um, I hope that you learn a lot um, through the podcast and some of the suggestions of the doctors that I've actually referred to and the other podcasts that, that are actually out there. It has some great content. It's where I'm getting my content from. I've been a diabetic for now for a couple of years and pre-diabetic for a decade. So this is a new world for me too. Um, It's a long story how I ended up with uh, diabetes because that didn't need to happen. And Well, okay, I'll make a long story short. Um, I totally forgot I had, I was pre-diabetic. Yeah, after 10 years, I just... The doctor said I was normal. That was good enough for me. So I, I'm like, I'm normal. I don't need to actually do anything. And then found out that it bit me in the butt. So now I have to go back and do it again. But if I can, if I did it once, I can certainly do it again and never forget. Okay. So with that, I'm t- tuning out. Thank you so much for listening. Go ahead and share this, please. If um, you think that it'll be a benefit to somebody, I really do appreciate it when you do that because then we can help more people and the more people we can actually help and maybe we can get other themes, uh, other situations um, working. And what I mean by that is other people actually speaking out 
or speaking about diabetes, creating their own podcast, or possibly even creating a diabetes group in your neighborhood if you know enough people that want to talk about this stuff, because that's what we should do, is talk about it. All right. Thank you very much once again. Signing out. This has been Margaret Copenfrequent, and you know what? Just be kind to each other. Bye-bye. Thank you.